Hello and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon. I'm here with Emily Peck. Both of us work for Axios. Hi. We are joined with the New York Times' very own, well, it's not really, it's just one of her many fiddles, Elizabeth Spires. Hello. We are going to talk about the big Supreme Court case that was decided this week, or at least one of them, the one about affirmative action, what it means for corporations. But honestly, the heart of this show is about marketing. We're going to talk about influencer marketing at Shein and Bud Light. We're going to talk about mega marketing at Mattel with the Barbie movie. And we're going to talk about whether we're going to watch Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day, and if so, which one comes first. That is all coming up. We have a Slate Plus segment on Vanna White, who is earning $3 million a year and wants more. So we'll talk about that. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So, yeah, let's start with this affirmative action ruling from the Supreme Court. And I was thinking, this being the corporate arm of the Slate podcast empire, that we could concentrate on what this means for business. I think it's pretty clear what it means for selective universities. But I think there are implications, and I think, Emily, you agree with me on this one, that it could affect not only admissions to universities, but also corporate hiring decisions. Yes, exactly. I think maybe there's two different kinds of impacts for business real world purposes. First would be the most prestigious schools would be graduating fewer uh, people of color, which would mean fewer in the pipeline just naturally. Um, and that would have all kinds of downstream consequences. One of the justices brought up a really big one, which would be in medicine, um, which already has very few black doctors. And there's all kinds of research and studies that show black doctors um, for, for black children, black babies and mothers, having a black doctor can make a life or death difference. Um, or, you know, just in regular business hiring, you're going to hire fewer people of color because they're not coming out of the same, you know, university pipeline as, as usual. There's a second business consequence that's more murky at this point, and that is what happens to corporate diversity hiring programs and initiatives. And I think that's a little more unclear and, um, you know, we should probably talk about that. So, yeah, in terms in terms of the first one, I, I think, number one, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of companies who love the whole credentialism system and think that if you graduated from Harvard, then ipso facto, you're, you know, a highly desirable potential employee. Um, I have been arguing against this for as long as I can remember. And if this goes a little way, you know, if this helps corporate DEI departments to help persuade HR departments that they should not just be looking at selective universities and they should be looking at the full range of colleges or maybe even people who haven't gone to college at all when they make hiring decisions, that would be amazing. But you're right that certainly among the, you know, elite 
or the companies who like to think of themselves as hiring only the elite, then this is this is bad news. But you're right that the bigger, broader question is like there's something in the water now. A woman who was a manager at Starbucks just got a $25 million jury award um, after she got fired um, and claimed that it was because she was white. And the actual award was $600,000. And then there was an extra 25 million of punitive damages. And clearly that like juries feel, or at least some juries feel much the same way that the Supreme Court does about this. There's, there's definitely a feeling that there is, um, you know, anti-white sentiment in woke corporate America. And companies are going to be worried about getting taken to court and potentially losing even if they appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big problems with this is that it's murky in terms of how eliminating race-based consideration might translate into a corporate environment because a lot of DEI initiatives are not necessarily, are more, you know, informal. It's not just a matter of reaching quotas. And the conservative talking point about affirmative action is that it's just a matter of saying we're going to have this many hires that check a diversity box. And they're not really clear about what the criteria are. So, well, and, and I mean, that's that, but that wasn't the case in, in this case, right? It wasn't that the universities were, had any kind of quota, and yet they were still not allowed to take race into account. Yeah, but I'm, I'm pushing back on your point that, you know, there's something in the water and that people don't like woke wokeness in these scenarios because affirmative action has majority of support from uh, you know, most Americans. And that's that's most Americans, not just most liberal Democrats. Is that true? I mean, most of what I've been reading says that the polling shows that Americans don't support race-based um, college admissions. Uh, the polling, We saw that polling, in California I've seen with their when, Specifically referendum. when you talk about affirmative action in colleges, there's majority support for that. I think, you know, it's part of it is poll design and how you ask a question. There's certainly a way that you can ask a question about racial considerations and hiring or college admissions that frames it a little bit differently and doesn't specifically talk about affirmative action. But affirmative action as a policy does enjoy majority support from Americans. But but in any case, this is not a question of this is this is not a question of like democracy. This is a question of the judicial system. And there's definitely, as we've mentioned many times on this show in the past, this like increasing anti-work sentiment, even if it's a minority sentiment. Um, but people are becoming more aggressive, and they're becoming more aggressive about taking companies to court. And it is almost certain, I think, that the louder a company proclaims the strength of its commitment to DEI, to DEI principles, the more likely it is that they're going to wind up getting taken to court by someone claiming that this is, you know, illegal or that they were discriminated against. And no one wants to have that court fight, you know, whether or not they're going to win. And increasingly, it looks like they could even lose. Yeah, I think um, this decision is really bad for corporate diversity initiatives. First, to pull on what the string of what Felix said. I mean, companies are conservative. They're, they're frady cats. They're not going to want to go out on a limb for something like this. And 
already there's been backlash to some of the diversity initiatives, you know, pushed forward after um, George Floyd's murder in 2020. And, you know, the, the Supreme Court obviously didn't, they didn't talk about corporate diversity initiatives, but in his majority opinion, Roberts did say that diversity, I'm not going to have the wording right, but he basically said it was kind of like a squishy goal that was hard to prove. So you could kind of see the seeds of something planted there. You know, if you're a company and diversity is one of your goals, if the the Supreme Court just ruled that diversity is like a squishy goal that's hard to to show in the data, you could see where that might lead. Now, to be fair, like the EEOC came out with a statement yesterday. Um, that's the agency that enforces civil rights laws um, for employers. And they came out and they said, the Supreme Court's decision doesn't have anything to do with employers and diversity initiatives are fine and totally legal. Um, so I don't want to like get out ahead on my skis. I just think this is part of like a big backlash that's brewing, obviously. Um, and part of it's going to hit corporate America and corporate America is not this big, strong bastion of civil rights. Like they'll fold, like look what Budweiser just did. They folded, you know what I mean? Um, so that's what I'm worried about. We're going to talk a little bit about Budweiser um, later on in this show, but one of the interesting twists here is that there is this um, broad expectation slash understanding that college admissions should be, in some sense, fair or meritocratic or somewhere between the two. And I don't think that people really have that expectation for corporate hiring. That, you know, the hiring decisions are always, they always feel so weirdly random and idiosyncratic that, you know, possibly you could make an argument if if you're just, if you have like a complete hiring machine situation going on, like, you know, if you're hiring from Amazon warehouses or something like that, and you're hiring people by the thousands. But a lot of corporate hiring really is just I'm hiring one individual person for one individual job and, you know, they need to fit into this specific team and work with these specific people. And I think the it's the, the other, the flip side of what we just saw from the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court, and we've seen this from both Democratic-nominated judges and Republican-nominated judges, has become much more corporate-friendly over recent decades. And if corporations just come out and say, look, we can hire whoever we want, that's up to us, that's our prerogative, I I think that's a conservative argument that could actually win. Well, but with who? I mean, <laughs> there, there's, I guess, you know, when you take into consideration that most hiring managers are, you know, they skew white and male in, in a lot of corporations, maybe that's true. But you know, when we're talking about equity initiatives and race-based considerations specifically, which is what the Supreme Court ruling is about, you know, those sort of things, I I agree with Emily that it could get a little bit squishy in terms of how you define that, but we have a lot of data that says that race comes into hiring considerations even even in the absence of DEI initiatives. And one good example is- Of course it does, yeah. I mean, like that's that's why DEI initiatives exist, right? I mean, I don't think, yeah, that's that's the whole point. And the question is, do corporations have the prerogative to hire whoever they want and to do so, you know, with written down DEI initiatives? I think I think the big risk here, just to be clear, is that DEI initiatives are going to become 
hidden and secret rather than out and proud. And that corporations aren't going to stop doing them so much as they're going to stop talking about them. And if you stop talking about them, that itself is, you know, bad for DEI broadly, because the more that we talk about it and the more that we embrace it, the more normalized and a good thing that people understand it to be. And I think that the risk here is that corporations, it's not so much that they're just going to stop doing them, but that they're going to, they're going to say, like, we just don't want to give a bunch of red meat to the kind of people who are inclined to sue us for this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's too early to say, obviously, what happens in corporate America because of this decision, but this is not a good decision for diversity in hiring. And I think there are plenty of companies that would probably like to toss out the whole notion of diversity in hiring. Like, Felix, you're saying they'll they'll take it on the down low or something. They'll do it quietly. But I think a lot of companies will take this as an opportunity to just do less. Because there was a lot of dissatisfaction, I think, um, with the increase in efforts around diversity post-George Floyd. You know, you hear little whispers here and there, even in media, which has made a really, really strong effort to hire, you know, a lot of people who uh, different races. Um, so I just think this is like a great day for the racists. Yeah, I think what it may do is give smaller employees who don't really understand EEOC protections in the first place or, or have some general idea of what they're supposed to do an excuse to discriminate and violate EEOC protections because they think it's the same thing. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. 
After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, I need to ask you two, um, Emily, on a scale of one to ten, how caught up in Barbie fervor are you and will you be watching the movie? I'm so excited for the movie. I'm unabashedly taken, I'm unabashedly captured by Mattel's evil genius marketing campaign from the moment I saw the Barbie preview, which I hope Patrick can play a clip from where she says, hi, Barbie. Hi Barbie. <laughs> Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie! Hi Barbie! I'm just like so excited for this movie. I don't know quite. I can't quite articulate it. Maybe we can talk about it. Maybe we can dig in to why I'm so excited. But I have um, a daughter who is 12. She is also excited. We're both going. I was just thinking today. Maybe I'll wear pink to the movie. I don't know. I don't usually dress up for movies. That's not my thing. But I love the idea of going on opening weekend and wearing pink. And as you know, <laughs> I have a pink suit. So maybe I will do that. Yes, everyone do it. Um, it will brighten our days from these dark these dark times. Elizabeth, are you, are you with us on this one? Yeah, I'm, I'm shamelessly <laughs> bought into anything that taps into my Gen X nostalgia for uh, yes. anything I grew up with. But particularly whenever it's it has a thick layer of irony on top of it, which th- this film absolutely does. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm a complete sucker for that kind of thing. I, I don't so have a pink outfit which, to wear, yeah. but... You don't have a pink outfit. It's true. I, I, I rarely see you wearing pink. Then again, <laughs> I rarely see Emily wearing pink either. So we will, we will, you know, have to share some photographs. But the thing which I really love about this whole marketing onslaught from a just you know capitalism perspective is the way in which Mattel not only got paid somewhere between 25 million and 50 million just for allowing the movie studio to make the movie in the first place but then they turned the movie into a just part of a much broader ad campaign for Barbie the doll, the brand, the icon, which the has lifestyle, which has roped in every single conceivable brand you can think of. You know, there's a Barbie Xbox, there's a, you know, Barbie pool floats, there's Barbie everything right now. And they're also pink and they're also delicious and they're also desirable. That in a way, like for the first time, people like me who don't particularly like playing with dolls can go out and excitedly buy Barbie product and be into it. And this is so much bigger than the movie. And the movie, if anything, is just an ad for the product and an ad for the brand. And the idea that this is one of those ads that instead of paying for it, you get paid for it and you get paid a lot of money for someone else to do an ad for you just blows my mind. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like a marketing feat Un, unrivaled, unparalleled. If you go and look at all like the trade magazines and websites that cover marketing and ads, they're all just like 
Mattel and its genius. How did Mattel pull off this genius move? And they go back to 2018 when Barbie was, no, 2015, I think, when Barbie was declared dead and had the lowest sales in 25 years. And and the millennials didn't like Barbie anymore. She was sexist. Everyone hated her. And then the company embarked on this like big turnaround plan for Barbie, which is really coming, really culminating right now with this like insane marketing campaign with like the life-size Barbie dream house, the Barbie handbags from Balmain, the Barbie cardigans and hot topic. There's like Barbie toothbrush, there's Barbie ice cream and Barbie frozen yogurt. Um, And it's really about marketing the toy, not just marketing the toy at kids anymore, but marketing them at at, at us, at the three of us, we're totally bought in. It's, it's totally like getting working. adults to come in, and it's 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 really it's really working. Plus, in twenty twenty three, even as Gen Xers, we're not turned off by commercialism anymore. We're like okay with it now. Somehow, for for I think we're okay I don't with understand. it if it seems vaguely entertaining, you know. And I think part yeah. of the reason why the the Barbie stuff is working a little bit is is that it's you know become a trend with brands to do collaborations between wildly disparate brands and products. You know, the Marvel movie comes out, you see a X Men Gillette razor. It's like, well, why? You know, but <laughs> it, it also, I think, you get both of the brands get a little bit of lift from it. And in the case of the Barbie stuff, I think this has been an opportunity for a lot of CMOs who need to check a creativity box to just put crazy ideas out there and get them funded. You know, so some of it, I think, Mm -hmm. is just about incentives in advertising to do really high concept stuff and these crazy collaborations because they do get a lot of buzz. I mean, the the Airbnb Barbie Dreamhouse has been covered so many times already. And that Mm -hmm. seems like an expensive thing to do. But when you look at all the earned media it gets, it makes total sense. And just like the think pieces on Barbie, too, like the New York Times, um, Last in last weekend's paper, they had a huge spread on the Barbie Dream House, and they took it really seriously. They they went back to the first Dream House, and they were like, at the time the first Dream House launched, women couldn't even get mortgages, you know. And they sort of like laid out the history of like women buying houses with the Barbie Dream House, and made it this very feminist thing where the first Dream House had no kitchen, big deal, right? Because little girls heretofore had been given dollhouses with kitchens, because you know that's. That's where they'd be working in the future, kind of a thing, um, and, and just yeah, the proliferation of think pieces, the earned media. It's really well, it's a really successful striking. rebranding, though, too. When you consider the 2015 criticism that Barbie was very retro in a bad way mm-hmm. and bad model for you know young girls. Uh, now that the whole narrative is that actually Barbie is a feminist icon. Uh, and, and they were able to do that with just the run-up to a, a movie product. That's that's an incredible control. I, change see, of I'm the not. Narrative. I haven't quite. I haven't quite gone so far as to buy into the idea that Barbie is a feminist icon. I I, I, I <laughs> do so think ridiculous. you haven't seen computer think, programmer Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that um, hiring Greta Gerwig to direct the movie was a stroke of genius because she has that ability to. Um, to be kind of third wave about these things, you know, and be sort of a little bit beyond reproach while also not being remotely strident or on message about, you know, I'm sure I I haven't seen any reviews. I don't know if anyone has really seen the movie yet, but I'm sure it doesn't have some deeply divisive 
message. You know, it's it's going to be a very fun, fluffy summer movie, and it's going to be enjoyed as such. And that's awesome. We really need this. We need Barbie <laughs> right now. <laughs> so the I just Supreme have, Court's I, bringing darkness, and Barbie is bringing light. I yeah. I just need to ask ask you, Emily, are you going to do the <laughs> Double bill of Barbie and Oppenheimer. And if so, which one are you going to see first? Our producer, Patrick, asked me about this, and I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know at all anything about this. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer comes out the same day the Barbie movie comes out, and it's some, like, big prestige bummer movie about the guy who invented the nuclear bomb, and I I will not be seeing it at there, all. There are probably. internet memes now of Oppenheimer-Barbie <laughs> crossovers that people are making. There was one with a big pink cloud, and it was just a shot from some still. And <laughs> Barbenheimer. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally going to see Oppenheimer, though, and I'll see it probably before the Barbie movie. What? On the same day? Yeah, on the same day, yeah. I think the that's the day? sequence. You, you see Oppenheimer first, and then you see Barbie, you and then you go out and like get a, it. like a nice, you know. uplifting note? <laughs> exactly. So Oppenheimer, <laughs> then Barbie. Yeah. Then cocktails. Yes. We hit, Oppenheimer, Barbie, cocktails. Perfect. Pink martinis. Cosmopolitans, that's what they're called. <laughs> they're probably Barbie-branded cocktails out there. I'm I sure there are. But no, it's been, it's been a few years since I was unabashedly drinking Cosmos, and I feel like I should go back to those, <laughs> those days. Let's talk about the other end of the marketing spectrum, because... Marketing fail. While the ultra-expensive, ultra-professional, ultra-high-dollar marketing push by Mattel around Barbie has been a clear success. We have, be- we have begun to see the way in which influencer marketing, that, which was the you know new hotness for the past few years, can backfire massively. You have these much lower-budget campaigns um, that are greenlit much lower down the org chart that don't have full corporate buy-in necessarily and that like suddenly go viral for all the wrong reasons. And the one in the news right now is Shein, the Chinese fast fashion company that may or may not be going public, um, but is certainly incredibly successful and has been kind of low-key battling pretty predictable narratives which surround all fast fashion companies about how its clothes are made in sweatshop conditions. And some bright spark at Shein decided that the way they were going to battle this narrative was to fly a bunch of influencers that no one ever, had ever heard of over to, chi- over to China, show them the factories, and get them to do TikTok saying, I saw these factories, and everyone there seemed very happy. Um, which... They did, and then everyone just said, "Oh my God, this is ludicrous!" and pounced on them. And then, by and then, as far as I can make out, very few people sort of organically saw those original influencer videos. But everyone saw the backlash videos and the backlash think pieces, and how you know it wasn't working. Um, and the thing that made me think of was, and you know, we mentioned this earlier, the the Bud Light campaign with Dylan Mulvaney, which again was just like, they sent this trans influencer, like a can of Bud Light with her face on it. And then suddenly it created billions of dollars of earned media in the wrong direction that everyone got really angry about. And is this the first indication that influencer marketing campaigns are 
possibly much more volatile and much more dangerous than people had really realized? I think if you've, if, yeah, I've done some work with influencer agencies and they're always a little bit volatile because you're, what you're paying for is access to that influencer's very specific audience who is going to respond to that single person in a way that you can't entirely control. And, you know, for influencers who have a ton of followers, you know, in the, in the millions, they get really strict creative briefs about what they can and can't do. And sometimes things are very scripted. In this case, it seems like they weren't. Uh, but the, the influencers were so excited to get a trip. You know, they, they were not clearly people who were used to getting comped, those sort of things. And so they, I don't even think they had to push them to be effusive about, you know, what was happening in the factories. I think they did it organically because they felt like they were being treated really well. And, and that's probably part of where it backfired. You know, they, they should understand that they're, if they're too over the top in terms of defending the company's uh, labor practices, that people are going to be skeptical about that. And that, that is not going to go the way that they wanted it to. You're saying that Sheehan should understand that or that the influencers should Well, Sheehan's a big enough company that they, they should understand enough about influencer marketing to know that when influencers push something too hard or they're too over the top about it, their audiences generally don't like it. Because people generally yeah. don't like to I, be felt like they're they're being propagandized to or you know products are being shoved down their throat. My general take on this is that that's a risk, but it's not necessarily what happened in these cases that you know as i say these were relatively small scale influences and for all we know their audiences were fine with it and they went oh okay that's interesting and moved on with their lives and thought that she was probably fine but then what happened is that a few of people a few people who like weren't in the audience you know found these videos and started amplifying them to a whole new, you know, anti-corporatist audience. Um, that this is the this is the risk. Like if Dylan Mulvaney's Bud Light video had stayed within her fan community, that would have been all for the good. It all went horribly sideways when it kind of jumped over to the anti-woke community, and then you know everything went really bad. And I think that's the risk here is not so much that the audience of these influences is going to take things the wrong way, but more that the videos will reach people who aren't in the audience of the influences and then things become really, really unpredictable. Yes. And I think the, the Sheehan marketing idea was just bad. <laughs> like, right. I mean, it's obvious propaganda. This company has been accused of forcing people to work like 18 hours a day um, for very, very, very little money and also been accused of using, you know, f forced labor. Um, and so the idea that they could sort of whitewash all that by taking six influencers and not even the highest profile influencers and showing them one very cleaned up, you know, factory um, in China and then making it seem like everything's fine. That's just, that's a bad idea right there. Like I, if I had, if they had asked me, I would have told them it was a bad idea. And the idea that. <laughs> Maybe you should go work for a Shein marketing department. Emily. <laughs> and, and in, 
And the other thing is, you know, the idea that you can have an influencer just talk to their audience on a public facing platform and it's not going to go to other audiences, I think they should also know better. I mean, TikTok is is public and these things go viral. The goal of this kind of marketing is for things to go viral, not just to target a particular audience, but like you'd hope that more people would see it, right? Well, I think so, hoped that more people would see it. I think that it just went right. viral in the wrong direction for them. Right, right. I'm saying like you can't, like Felix was saying, you know, the problem is when this goes outside the target audience, but like that's part of the goal. Yeah. So if the goal, the goal is problematic, right? So if- I think I think that's exactly <laughs> it. That the, the people are realizing now, or we're realizing, and maybe we should have known this all along, that micro-targeting is, is never going to be something you can control, right? Like if you're trying to reach a small group of you know fans of Dylan Mulvaney that's all well and good but inevitably you know if you're putting that on a public platform a much larger group of people are going to see it and this is why historically marketing messages have always been very very carefully controlled and why it takes you know 18 different layers of approval before any kind of marketing message goes out from anyone and why um you know it's so difficult to get a feeling of honesty and humanity out of any brands because um you know because intuitively brands have understood this that everything that comes out with their name on it is part of their marketing and they need to be very careful about making sure that it's in line with exactly what they want the brand to be and so yeah it's it's not easy to send one message to one group of people and another message to another group of people and have them happily coexist I think they also just yes. may have assumed that this would not be, you know, they might have not anticipated the blowback because Shein is such a popular brand on TikTok. Um, and I doubt very seriously that they've seen any sales drops because if you are familiar with the brand and you're the kind of influencer who's been promoting Shein products, you're also aware of their labor practices. I mean, this is not a big secret. I think you're just the kind of person who doesn't really care or, or you're not going to boycott the brand because of it. So I think in terms of their actual customers, I would be surprised if this moved the needle at all. Yeah, but yeah, just stick, I, stick I totally with the agree. unboxings, people. Stick with like sending the influencers free shit and getting them to like rave about how amazing it is. That's that's a and lot you know, more reliable. That's how Shein became popular. Right. They sent clothes to influencers who posted about it on TikTok and and went viral and then everyone was shopping at Shein. And yeah, totally Elizabeth. I don't think this is unlike Budweiser also in that it's not going to affect sales in any way. I think we should have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number? Uh, my number is 22, and that's a million. And there are three people who have been indicted for gaining illegal profits in trading ahead of the proposed merger of Trump's social media company into a SPAC called Digital World Acquisition Corp. And every time I read an insider trading story like this, I'm just baffled that anybody thinks that they can get away with it <laughs> because these things are so straightforward. Um, Did they buy short-dated out-of-the-money call options? No. Because that's always the way to guarantee that you're going to get caught. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they left a paper and electronic trail where they were talking about the merger ahead of the IPO. Tisk tisk tisk. 
At least someone made money off of Trump's social media site. Is that the wrong take? Yes. Well, if, if they, don't, so. they don't have the, the deal isn't done yet. So if it's not done by September 8th, they have to liquidate the 300 or so million that they've raised. Oh, uh, sad. Well, but th- at that point, does Trump go back to Twitter? That's why I have the take, because I don't. I want Trump to just stay on Truth Social. I don't want him to come back to Twitter. Though I'm, I'm almost done with Twitter, to be honest. Yeah, same here. Um, Emily? Okay, get ready. I'm ready. My number is four. That's the number of words in the sentence, Livy rizzed up baby Gronk. <laughs> That I did that's, not understand. That's five That's a five-word no, sentence. No, right no. There. Nope. Listen again. <laughs> Four is the number of words in the sentence I did not understand. I understand uh, the word up, okay. but I did not understand Livy, Rizzed, or Baby Gronk. But like together. really, really, if Baby Gronk is is one thing, then Rizzed up is one thing. Really, it's it's like a three word sentence in that sense. In that case, not okay. a four word sentence. Well, should I should I you should, you should, tape it again? I, no, should I feel I like we should we should talk here? about this sentence because it's an important okay. sentence. Yes. So, Livy Rizzed up Baby Gronk. That is something Felix brought up last week. I don't even remember exactly why he brought it up, but I was like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. And then I thought about it, and I was like, I shouldn't be so closed minded. And then our producer, who I've mentioned three times already in the show sent me a link. So he sent me a link called Livy Rizzing Up Baby Gronk Explained, which I read. And now <laughs> I understand what all the words mean. And I can explain it to you, the audience, if you like. Um, do you yes, want to know? Wait, wait. I mean, I know what it what? means. I do too, but well, I, can I, I, think, too. Uh, I feel like the audience <laughs> deserves an explanation. A lot of people don't. We're, we're, we're terminally online people, so... So, so, but this is this is the question before before we explain what Livy Rizdak Baby Gronk means. Why would anyone need to know this? Because you mentioned it on Slate Money, and I needed to know what it meant. <laughs> okay, if because if, I want to be in the conversation. If Emily, or something like if that. Emily felt the need to know what it meant, then maybe one of you guys out there also feels the need to know what it meant. So, here with Emily's explanation. Of what it meant. Here goes, okay. Livy, Olivia Dunn, 20-year-old gymnast at LSU. She has millions of followers and relevant top-earning female athlete in NIL deals, which we talked about last week. Rizzed is Gen Y slang derived from Riz, which is like charisma or flirting. So if you're like risen someone up, you're kind of like flirting with them. If you have Riz, you have charisma, you know what I mean? Baby Gronk is a 12-year-old with 312,000 followers on Instagram, and his real name is Madden San Miguel. Okay, he met with Livy, and there was a video of it, and in the video, it's really sweet. Like, she is obviously very charismatic. She has Riz, it's clear to me. And she says hi to him, and she said, you should come to LSU someday or whatever. And he posted a YouTube, vis- <laughs> YouTube video of it, where- which he titled Livy Dunn, knows I got Riz, which now all the audience listening understands what that means. None of this really mattered very much until a gentleman (laughs) who goes by the name Hoopify on TikTok posted kind of like a joke TikTok about Baby Gronk's visit to LSU. And he said, you know, Livy rizzed up Baby Gronk. And then that is my understanding went viral. And that's when it became a subject of conversation. Um, oh, and P.S. Gronk, 
I don't know if Felix knows this, short for Rob Gronkowski, who played on the Patriots with Tom Brady, and they went to the Super Bowl a bunch of times, and they, he is called Gronk. So that is it. Uh, and apparently is he is a little bit fed up with all of this baby Gronk thing and has threatened nasty grams to baby Gronk, or at least baby Gronk's dad, Aww. which I feel Aww. like, don't do that. No, these are children doing fun things. And now I know what Riz means, and I also spent time on a Wikipedia page learning about Gen Y slang. So I might be using more of it. So I'm sorry to everyone who has to hear me do that going forward. Um, I, I, I thank you for doing that, Emily, and I yes. will be rizzing you up all week for doing that. <laughs> uh, I, I can't follow that, but I, somehow I have to. Uh, my number is... 64 billion, which is the number of dollars by which the Bureau of Economic Analysis apparently got the GDP number wrong when they came out with first quarter GDP in April. Um, at the end of April, the advanced GDP estimate for the first quarter came out. Um, they said that it had grown 1.1%. This week, there was the third estimate for first quarter GDP, and they said 1.1%. What were we thinking? No, in fact, first quarter GDP grew by 2%. And the difference between the two in terms of GDP is $64 billion, which gives you an idea of um, the magnitude by which economic statistics you know, have error bars. It's funny because you know how like people, you know, people are saying lately that economic statistics are made up or something? Um, but if they were made up, they wouldn't keep getting revised like that. Exactly. There's no revisions when you're making up numbers. You just stick with them. Everybody knows that. And if you did, well, if you were making them up, you suddenly wouldn't have huge revisions where you doubled the GDP yeah. number from one to the next because that, yeah. Come on, that, people. Get your conspiracy theories straight. Although I guess if you wanted people to think you weren't making it up, you would do it like this. Because Ooh. then... Ooh, so, I don't even know what to think anymore. <laughs> There's a lot of red string on the wall. I think that's it for us this week. Unless you want to know about... Um, we had an awesome Slate Plus segment lined up, and I've already forgotten what it was. What was it, Emily? Um, well, would you like to buy a, buy a vowel? Vanna White. It was Vanna White. Vanna White! <laughs> yes! Because this is, this is a great pop culture episode. We have Livy, we have Baby Gronk, we have Barbie, and in Slate Plus, we have Vanna White. So make sure you're a Slate Plus listener. Listen to us talking about Vanna White, who, according to some people, might be underpaid. And otherwise, thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in on Slate Money at Slate.com. Thanks to Patrick Fort for giving Emily lots of material this week. And we will be back next week with more Slate Money. Money.